Hello, it's Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. And this, the penultimate last day of this rather um, unusual year, 2020, since December 30th. Um, I'm going to get right into discussion of what we've been doing. We're discussing the uh, metabolism and T lymphocytes. Been talking a lot about particularly carbon metabolism. Haven't done much with nitrogen yet. Don't worry, it's coming. Well, we have talked a little bit about C1 metabolism, which of course is associated with amino acid and nucleotide biosynthesis. And of course, those contain nitrogen. Uh, and in fact, that's where the major impact is uh, for the T lymphocyte metabolic reprogramming after T cell receptor activation. Um, and we'll get into that in a moment. But this time, we're going to continue on with our deep focus on the regulation of metabolism. So that requires that we talk about a couple of effector molecules. One of them is going to be uh, AMP kinase, which we've talked about before. And the other I want to briefly touch upon is cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase, because those are two different systems entirely. So again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and uh, this is uh, Authentic Biochemistry. So <clears throat> about AMP kinase. AMP kinase produces what I call a balancing energy homeostasis. And uh, it does so in all systems that it functions within, which is practically every cell in the body. But here we're talking about T cell activation. Now, one of the most obvious mechanisms of what's called bottom-up metabolic signaling um, is the AMP kinase system. Remember, we talked about bottom-up and top-down regulation of T lymphocytes. So here's bottom-up uh, in more detail. Of course, cells have to regulate energy, and they primarily use ATP as the bioenergetic fuel, and that coordinates all energy-producing and all energy-consuming processes. We talked about the energy charge, for example. <clears throat> AMP kinase binds to and is activated by adenine nucleotides, such as AMP. And it does so when it detects that the cellular energy stores are, uh, are under a high level of consumption, okay? And at low levels relative to the concentration of um, what is necessary for normal energy-driven metabolism. So the relative concentration of ATP is lower than AMP and ADP. So this drop in cellular energy promotes AMP kinase. And when AMP kinase is activated, it phosphorylates components of many energetic pathways. These would be enzymes. The enzymes involved in glycolysis, uh, all different kinds of metabolic pathways in the mitochondria. And as I mentioned last time, lipid metabolism, of course, is just in the mitochondria, at least beta oxidation is. Uh, so that, too, will be uh, affected. AMP kinase activates something called the TSC complex, which inhibits the mTORC. And therefore, the, all of these actions conducted by AMP kinase promote catabolism, and that ultimately is used to restore ATP levels. So AMP kinase ends up being a really critical regulator of T-cell metabolism. High glycolytic activated T-cells are, of course, unable to maintain ATP levels in low glucose environments. In that setting, 
a disruption of cellular energetics engages the amp kinase, which then inhibits the mTOR. It inhibits global translation of messenger RNA, and of course, puts in quiescent mode T-cell proliferation. Now, the loss of one particular isoform called AMP kinase alpha-1, which is actually the, uh, the catalytic component of the polypeptide, is sufficient to restore T, uh, mTOR signaling and indeed uh, T-cell cytokine synthesis and production and, and uh, secretion. But it does not restore proliferation. When cells are stimulated in limiting glucose conditions, that's the standard fare. Now, although a loss of AMP kinase can restore some functions in glucose-restricted T cells, the cells do not initiate metabolic adaptations necessary to recover the full ATP levels. This is because what's necessary there is a full complement of mitochondrial respiration, which is not directly regulated here at the AMP kinase level. But in vivo, AMP kinase alpha-1 deficient T cells, lymphocytes have indeed a decrease in mitochondrial respiration and also a decrease in glutaminolysis. Um, ATP to AMP ratios also uh, are suppressed and therefore a failure to proliferate and function effectively is a result of having a deficiency in AMP kinase. All those data suggest that this is a metabolic sensor and rather than a depletion of metabolic resources, it actually is going to be working somewhere further upstream from T-cell functional programming so that the entire metabolic sequence is um, functional and transformed into correct event ontology. So Abkinase has been proposed to play an important role in sensing, of course, lots of other metabolic changes associated in many cells, including T-cells, and the major one here is T-cell activation. And that's beyond what I call energetics. T-cell activation results in increase in, for example, reactive oxygen species production. When T-cell ROS levels are reduced through the use of scavengers, T-cells actually display a sustained AMP kinase signaling long after initial activation. Now, consistent with that, a raw scavenger treatment results in impaired mTOR signaling throughout the activation sequence. Moreover, T cells treated like that exhibit diminished glucose uptake and glycolysis and decreased proliferative capacity that will not go through cell division. And that's all in keeping with an understanding of AMP kinase activity, which is going to suppress that. Okay. Now, I want you to think back more about central metabolism. And here we go. A high insulin to glucagon ratio, those are two peptide hormones from the pancreas, will decrease another system called the cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase. So cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase requires first adenylate cyclase to convert ATP to cyclic AMP. And then once cyclic AMP um, essentially helps dissociate components of the protein kinase, and it activates that protein kinase. Now, when you have this high insulin to glucagon ratio, that means you have high circulating glucose. All of that, when you diminish cyclic AP-dependent protein kinase, that's going to alter the phosphorylation state 
of a lot of the metabolic enzymes, all of which are controlled by phosphorylation at one level of allosteric regulation. PFK1 is no um, uh, shy enzyme to this system. PFK1 is highly reg allosterically regulated. We talked a couple of uh, episodes ago that's activated by fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. And I told you that was synthesized by the bifunctional PFK2, FBPase2 um, enzyme when that protein is dephosphorylated. When that occurs, glycolysis is favored, okay? However, in cardiac and skeletal muscle, AMP kinase phosphorylates the bifunctional enzyme at a unique serine residue. Now, this is AMP kinase, which induces PFK2 activation over and above any phosphatase activity. And therefore, it stimulates glycolysis, and it even also overcomes hypoxia. Now, of course, hypoxia renders mitochondrial electron transport chain, oxfos, basically non-functional, because you require molecular oxygen as the ultimate electron acceptor, which, of course, gets ultimately reduced to water, right? One electron at a time. But with depleted oxygen is in stress, and heavy skeletal muscle contraction, glycolysis must be stimulated as AMP levels rise. In fact, the AMP also controls PFK1 directly in yet another way. So you see how AMP kinase can be functional to regulating glycolysis. Now, the activation of the adenylate cyclase by glucagon, of course, triggers a synthesis of cyclic AMP, which then allosterically dissociates two suppressor domains, as I just mentioned, of the CAMP cyclic AMP, that is protein kinase, and that thus activates the protein kinase activity, which phosphorylates the bifunctional fructose 2,6 kinase, fructose 2,6 bisphosphatase protein. That's PFK2, FBPase2 protein. Thus converting it to the phosphatase which removes the fructose 6-bisphosphate that would have allosterically activated PFK1. Got that? So cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase also phosphorylates PFK1 and further inhibits it along with ATP, all acting as allosteric inhibitors, the same time ATP binds to a unique substrate site for the reaction to occur. So PFK1 is a tetramer with each subunit possessing two allosteric sites for ATP binding, one for substrate and one for inhibitor. ATP binds the inhibitor site when the tetramer is in the T state, also known as the tense state, which is of course less active. And when ATP binds to each subunit allosteric site, it completely conforms the, uh, conforms the enzyme to the full T state, so that it can no longer bind the substrate at all, which is fructose 6-phosphate. That renders the enzyme completely inactive for all intents and purposes intracellularly. This is how ATP controls glycolytic flux via what used to be referred to as mitochondrially-based respiratory control. AMP competes for that allosteric site and brings the enzyme back to the more active R or relaxed state this can be uh, graphed with PFK activity on the y-axis and increasing fructose 6-phosphate on the x-axis. 
and low ATP concentrations, the enzyme is characterized with hyperbolic kinetics, while as you increase ATP concentrations, you convert it to a more regulatory sigmoidal kinetics sort of curve saturation. Substrate cycling also controls PFK1, as there is a unique enzyme called fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, which is actually a gluconeogenic enzyme, also works the mechanism to control the influx of fructose 6-phosphate into the axis of pentose phosphate shunt for NADPH production. And of course, what else is in that pathway is synthesis of ribose 5-phosphate for nucleotide metabolism, biosynthesis of purines and pyrimidines specifically. You see, fructose 6-phosphate is substrate for both the aldolase and the transketolase reactions in that oxidative pentose phosphate shunt. There are also control points of glycolysis relative to the glucokinase, hexokinase, and glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase, as well as the pyruvate kinase enzymatic components of glycolysis. And all those feed into PFK1 indirectly because of substrate cycling, which is an overall metabolic programmed motif. So I could detail that some other time about metabolic cycling, because it's rather fascinating, but also very logical. Um, but I really want to get into uh, what we're discussing here. So we're going to continue. We're just going to move on here from here. But I, think I wanted to give you a brief, and that is brief, understanding of glycolytic regulation. Now, there is a role for long non-coding RNAs in metabolism. Now, this comes from a paper published in uh, Molecular Cancer in 2017, uh, volume 16, and I will definitely put this in the show notes, okay? So what's the role of these link RNAs, those are long non-coding RNAs? First of all, they mediate the epoxia inducible factor, PI3 kinase, AKT, mTOR, and the LKP1 AMP kinase pathway. Now, I'm going to give you a discussion of what, what happens in a tumor, which of course would be a target for a T lymphocyte. And I want you to keep this all in mind. Different cells. So the link RNAs, these long non-coding RNAs, can regulate HIF1 alpha protein synthesis and stability. They're, so it's of course going to modulate HIF1-mediated metabolic programming. The rate of translation of HIF1-alpha messenger RNA in cancer cells is dependent on the activity, typically, as we mentioned last time, on mammalian target rapamycin mTOR, which is in turn determined by the activity of an upstream tumor suppressor proteins and various oncoproteins, which we also have talked about previously. This is such things such as MYC. All right. Now, Link RNAs also regulate AKT and AMP kinase. AKT may increase oxidative phosphorylation by enhancing, of course, metabolic coupling between glycolysis and oxphos, and that would facilitate the association of mitochondrial hexokinase, uh, and so that you would carry out that series of reactions as well. Now, AKT in enhances glycolytic flux via multiple mechanisms, 
First, it increases glucose uptake and, and glycolysis itself, since it's stricter. Second, hyperactive AKT stimulates the mTORC1, which promotes the HIF1-alpha accumulation, even under normoxic conditions. And therefore, it increases such genes as GLUT1, exokinase 2, and lactate dehydrogenase. Remember, all important at the early activation of T-cells too. Now, here we're in tumors. Also, I want you to know that AKT increased cellular ATP levels serve to maintain low AMP kinase activity, which, of course, is going to be essential if we have full activation of the mTORC1. Okay. So in the tumor, you have growth factors, which trigger the PI3 kinase, which then stimulates AKT. And AKT can be further stimulated by non-coding RNAs, AKT will block the tumor sclerosis 1, tumor sclerosis 2 dimer, which would normally block REB, which would normally activate mTOR. So what that results in, basically, is that you get, because PI3 kinase activates AKT, and AKT stops TSC1 and 2, with TSC1 and 2 not functioning, it can't block REB, therefore REB activates mTOR, mTOR activates HIF1 alpha, and you get the you get the uh, expression of COX4, which is a cyclooxygenase enzyme. Now that's all happening at the level of the HIF1 axis PI3 kinase. Now I want you to keep in mind about glucose uptake in the same tumor cell. Compare this now to what we just said about the T lymphocyte. Glucose is taken up, hexokinase is activated, so you get the initial phosphorylation of glucose and stays inside the tumor cell. You run that through uh, uh, you know, the isomerase and then the PFK1, and you make fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. Now, fructose 1,6-bisphosphate then, with the help of PFK2, which is going to make fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, will promote the production of fructose bisphosphate, that's the 1,6, to 3-PGH PEP, and then to pyruvate, and then ultimately lactic acid. Now, why is all that functioning? Well, the AMP kinase would normally block that pathway, right? But it's not going to be functional here because you're going to have high levels of ATP. What is going to be functional to control this system are two link RNAs. One is called link RNA LET, which controls HIF1-alpha, and the other is link RNA MIF, which controls MYC. Both MYC and HIF1-alpha are necessary for AKT activation, and AKT activation is necessary to phosphorylate PFK2 and make it functional to promote fructose 2,6-bisphosphate production in the tumor. Uh, HIF1-alpha also, of course, promotes uh, pyruvate kinase M2, synthesizing pyruvate from PEP, and also the LDH enzyme, all of which would be essentially this aerobic glycolysis uh, functioning in tumor cells, right? You also get some production of acetyl-CoA from pyruvate, and that acetyl-CoA is going to go on and regulate glycolysis in yet one more way because the acetyl-CoA is going to be utilized to produce NADH 
and that NADH is going to start driving some oxidative phosphorylation, which is now going to allow a tumor cell to also burn some lipid as it's burning glucose directly from uh, uptake from GLUT, usually GLUT1, sometimes GLUT2. So I want you to keep all that in mind. So in a paper published in Genomics, Proteomics, and Bioinformatics, published in 2016, uh, the following is necessary for us to at least take a little examination, a little look at, okay? Um, all right. What I want to say here, I'm looking at something else here. Okay. This paper tells me the following. Recent advances in sequencing technologies allow us to know some in-depth understanding of the human genome. This came out in 2016, so imagine four years from hence. So when they first started looking at mammalian genomes, that's when they found out that there was a very low population of actual RNA transcripts for proteins that would be messenger RNAs. Uh, in fact, out of the 41,204 mammalian genes, only 56 of those genes showed, after using mass spec, as being consistent with protein expression. That suggests the majority of the RNA transcripts, are, of course, are non-coding. Now, of course, that number varies according to cell type, right? So the generation of the real pop large population of all this non-coding RNA, originally called nCRNA, suggests that RNAs do a lot more than just serve as intermediates for protein synthesis coming from DNA. One group of the short RNAs that were discovered, and those are the 200 nucleotides in length, and those are the microRNAs. We talked a great deal about them. Major function of microRNAs is suppressing protein synthesis, right? Because they bind to a sense region as antisense essentially molecules um, to messenger RNAs. You also have these small interfering RNAs, or siRNAs, are much smaller between 21 and 24 nucleotides, uh, and you also have something called peewee interacting RNAs, which are smaller than that. Um, there's another group called uh, of the non-codings. So those are called the links, and the links are the ones we were just discussing. Those are over 200 nucleotides in length. Okay? So many link RNAs, like the ones I just brought up here, are functionally associated with human disease, in particular cancer. Dysregulation of link RNAs is implicated, for example, in glioblastoma, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and liver cancer, as well as bloodborne cancers like leukemia and lymphoma. Commonly, a dysregulation in link RNAs causes a multitude of cellular dysfunctions, leading to sometimes, if they're in a tumor setting, to cell proliferation via division, of course. It also makes cells, when you have a dysregulated link RNA system going, resistant to programmed cell death, and at the same time, there's an induction of angiogenesis, a promotion, if it is, if it is a cancer, to metastasis, and in fact, an evasion of other systems such as tumor suppressor activity. So link RNAs have a lot of history with um, the biomedical field, particularly with cancer. I want you to keep that in mind. Now, the reason I went into that whole tumor thing is remember that the T lymphocytes are going to be working in opposition to the tumor, right? Whether it's in the central nervous system or somewhere else in, in the periphery of the body, 
the T lymphocytes are going to be called upon, particularly because they, they have natural uh, killer cells associated with, with the T cell population, the CD8 lineage, but also because of regular T helper cells helping to diminish the activity of tumors by outright causing inflammatory responses because of the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, thus inducing T-cell-mediated destruction and ablation of tumor and tumor cell lineages, including those that are metastasizing. I just told you that the machinery inside of tumor is very similar, even in valency, to what's going on with the T-lymphocyte. Now, in the tumor, you can see there is a great deal of activity along that same axis of glycolysis and lipid metabolism. If you'll recall, in the T cell, there is a change in activity from essentially lactic acid, homolactic fermentation, where glycolysis just ending up in lactic acid, then to the desuppression of the pyruvate dehydrogenase system, and then the co-activating of the pyruvate carboxylase so that you drive carbon into the mitochondria, thus entering the TCA cycle. But because of the huge amount of NADH around because of the lack of utilization of NADH and oxidative phosphorylation because of the uh, low levels of mitochondria in the, the naive state of the T lymphocyte. You get very infrequent, complete electron transport chain oxfos. So that means you get a buildup of NADH. That allows for the TCA cycle to synthesize citrate, which as you recall, will leave the mitochondria uh, with a, a tricarboxylic acid transporter, and then it will go through to be straight lias, and you'll generate acetylcholine and you'll make fatty acids. Then I told you after that, the fatty acids are used to make complex lipids like triacylglycerol. Acetylcholine can also be used to make cholesterol because that will prepare for cell division. As it turns out, it also prepares for lipid raft synthesis from the endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi apparatus, and that's necessary to move receptors to swap out new receptors on the surface of the T cell. So nothing is done without a careful coordination with each and every system in the cell. T lymphocytes are a classical case of this for biochemistry. All right, so that's where we, that's where we are right now. So let me just leave you with this. Back in 2011, the paper was published in JBC, and it talked about the Randall cycle. And Randall had proposed, before this paper was published, uh, basically an hypothesis to explain the mechanism whereby fatty acids suppress glucose utilization and oxidation in myocardial and diaphragm muscle. Now, according to that early hypothesis, he said, that increased beta-oxidation of fatty acids resulted in an elevated intramitochondrial acetyl-CoA concentration because of beta-oxidation, presumably, and an increase, therefore, in citrate, which would be transported to cytosol by the citrate carrier. I told you I called it a tricarboxylic carrier, which is what it is. Consequently, the cytoplasmic citrate levels increase, which leads to a direct inhibition. Now, here is something you didn't know, I bet a direct inhibition of PFK1 activity at the citrate regulatory site because high levels of citrate will block PFK1. 
And what that will do is cause an accumulation of glucose 6-phosphate, the resulting increase in the concentration of cytosolic glucose 6-phosphate would then decrease the hexokinase activity and thus decrease net glucose uptake by such muscles as the myocardium. Subsequent in vivo studies to investigate that hypothesis yielded supportive and even some contradictory mechanisms. I would say more contrarian, not contradictory. But the accumulated evidence demonstrates that fatty acids do have an inhibitory effect for both glucose uptake and utilization. So this is going to be really important for next time. You're going to really like what I'm going to explain to you. It's going to now include not just acylipid metabolism, such as fatty acids and fatty acid turnover, not just prenolipid metabolism, such as the production of cholesterol, and then all the subsequent production of corticosteroids and mineral corticoids and sex hormones, which will also serve to alter and regulate the immune system, sculpting it throughout life, ultimately getting into dysregulation at the end of life. But also, as we will find out, sphingolipids are involved. As I said, I hinted to at the beginning of the lecture, ceramide metabolism from the sphingomyelinase. So I'm going to stop here. Hopefully we uh, got a little bit further down the road here. So a lot of information to cover, and I want to do at least one more lecture before the new year, and I plan to do that. Maybe in a video, but certainly at least one more audio. Again, again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 30th of December 2020, saying bye for now.